0: This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. Sharpen your modeling skills with in-depth features and how-tos each month with Railroad Model Craftsman from Karsten's Publications. Hi, everyone. I'm Trevor Marshall. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the little show with big ideas about life, the universe, and everything, including little trains. We hope to stir up the gray matter and turn on the creative juices as we continue to present thoughtful and accomplished guests. That's for sure, Trevor. Hi, folks. I'm Jim Martin, the other guy behind the microphone. Thanks for joining us. Tell your friends about us. And a reminder before we get going, we encourage you to connect to the links on each of the interviews listed on our website for all the stories behind the stories. Later on, I'll be taking you to a part of the Windy City where the wind never blew. The Stygian Depths
1: of Chicago's Illinois Tunnel Company is modeled by John Landis. But first, another huge technological leap is about to happen in the world of model railroading, and the NMRA is
0: working hard to make it a smooth landing. Here's Trevor with his guest, Don Goodman Wilson. If you get the chance to visit a club layout that was built before the era of DCC and personal computers, and if that club has a dispatcher's panel, see if you can have a peek at the wiring. I belonged to such a club once, and the inside of the dispatcher's panel was downright scary. Most club members, including myself, crossed their fingers that nothing would ever go wrong, because we would never be able to fix it. Well, digital command control has greatly simplified track wiring. There's still a lot of wire, but not nearly what used to be required for multiple blocks, multiple control cabs, and multiple control panels— But if you're adding a signaling system to your layout, or want to be able to control track switches from multiple positions, or want indicators that show track occupancy, break out the spools of cable, and a heavy-duty soldering iron. And if you want those various control systems to actually talk to each other, you'd better crack the electrical engineering textbooks. Or listen to my guest today. Don Goodman-Wilson is a member of the team that's designing protocols that the National Model Railroad Association is adopting as its standard for layout control. It's called NMRA-NET, and it's designed to allow layout builders to connect controls, switch machines, signal systems, layout lighting, and other accessories over a common network that's easy to set up and use and flexible for any layout, whether it fits in a coffee table or a Quonset hut. It's also perfect for modular layouts that may be set up in different configurations each time. Don joined us previously on the Model Railway Show to discuss modelling his favourite prototypes, the Railways of Japan... In addition to his work on the protocols for NMRA Net, Don runs RailStars, a company that's developing electronic components to create NMRA Net compliant networks. He's on the line from Colorado. Don, welcome back.
2: Hey, thanks Trevor. It's great to be here again.
0: Let's start with what NMRA is all about. It's described as a layout control bus. What sort of things is it designed to control?
2: NMRA Net is primarily designed for control over all of your layout accessories, including turnouts, signals, animations you may have on the layout, sound, lighting, and so forth. Basically, it's meant to be a standardized glue that permits all of the electrical items on your layout to talk to each other.
0: Now, we already control these various items on our layouts, everything from the signaling system to the guy who jumps out of the little house at the crossing shack with the lantern. We've been doing that for, you know, 60, 70, 80 years now. But NMRA net will allow them to talk to each other directly, right? What sort of possibilities does that open up for layout builders?
2: The biggest advantage of the the NMRA net system is its flexibility. The bus is designed so that you can create the logical connections between your layout accessories in a way that makes sense to you. So you no longer need specialized modules for different signaling practices, to give an easy example, and you don't have to run wires specifically for each sort of function that you want to control. Instead, you choose how the various LEDs connected on a signal would form different aspects and then connect these aspects logically to various layout events, such as a block becoming occupied. This sort of flexibility means that the network serves your needs and not the other way around. So once you come to grips with this flexibility, the possibilities to answer your question are endless. The way I think of Net is as a set of virtual wires that you can use to connect any two or more layout components together in a way that makes sense for your layout without having to run physical wires for each of these possible connections.
0: Now there actually is wiring involved though. We're connecting up various modules with a computer cable, but it's one cable that just sort of gets daisy chained in the same way that people connect DCC throttle panels together, right?
2: That's right. We're we're using RJ45 connectors over CAT5 cable, which is easy to acquire in any office supply shop or electronic shop. And these modular connections make it easy to connect things together. And like you said, the modules are daisy-chained. The physical wiring and the virtual wiring don't have to have anything to do with each other.
0: It's just plug them in from one to the other, and away you go. The rest of it's done through programming. And we'll talk so, about the programming a little bit later on. But I want to get into the relationship between NMRA net and the NMRA itself. Why is making this layout control bus and NMRA standard important? Is there a, something at parallel that we can draw between this and the impact of having an NMRA standard for DCC?
2: This question has gotten a lot of attention on some online forums recently, and I've found myself having to answer it quite a lot. But I think we need to ask ourselves, first of all, why we have standards at all. We as modelers benefit from interoperability, and NMRA standard is a way of communicating what's needed to achieve this interoperability and a mechanism for enforcing it where such interoperability is clear. So the result is that we no longer have to pick the digital system to buy into. We can pick and choose just those components from just those manufacturers that suit our particular needs. And we can do so in the knowledge that these components are going to work with our existing layout, not have to worry about finding some expensive route out of a walled garden that we've purchased for ourselves.
0: It is very similar then to DCC in that in DCC, the standard governs how DCC systems talk to decoders. And each manufacturer at either end of that chain gets to describe, for instance, on a DCC system, how the throttles are going to interact with the command station and things like that. So they get an advantage there. But as layout owners, we know that if we buy something that is NMRA net compliant, that it will work with other... Components in that NMRA net system.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: Okay. What's the relationship between NMRA net and DCC? Uh, DCC isn't a requirement for using NMRA net, is it?
2: No, and we're, we're kind of excited about the possibilities for combining it with DC. So, NMRA net is primarily a mechanism for layout accessories to talk to each other, so turnout controller signals and things like that. And to this end, NMRA-NET is completely independent of DCC or DC or Selectrix or whatever it is that you're using. It doesn't matter how you control your trains. NMRANet net is designed to work alongside that control method.
0: But that said, the two systems could be able to talk to each other, or is NMRA-NET designed to eventually replace DCC the way that DCC has been replacing conventional DC control?
2: Yes and no. It's sort of both of these. So NMRAnet will eventually support train control, by which I mean a set of protocols for using your cabs to control your trains. This, I should emphasize, is in some sense a long way off. But these same set of protocols are well suited to being used as a cab bus, which is a project we're particularly excited about. We just got a discussion group together for hammering out these protocols. The idea for the traction control protocols, as we're calling them, is to allow you to connect an NMRA net compatible throttle or your existing throttles through an NMRA net bridge to your trains using whatever control method you're using now. If that's DCC or DC or Selectrix or what have you, even Brio trains in some sense, I suppose, are compatible here, right? So again, even with the train control protocols, NMRA net doesn't require DCC, but it's designed to complement DCC or whatever your favorite train control technology is. In the very long term, we do envision the possibility of trains running native net decoders. But the technology for this, especially in smaller scales, is, is a long way off, at least a decade. In the meantime, NMRA-NET is being designed to work with your existing collection, however it's powered, protecting your investment. So
0: that's good news for modelers who have a large sunk cost in their current control system and their current layout. If they want to add a signaling system to it, they can use NMRA-NET, and they don't have to replace their DCC system. However, if someone is starting fresh, eventually down the road, they won't have to buy and learn a DCC system and an NMRA-NET system. They should be able to get an NMRA-NET system and do everything. But that's a long
2: way off. That's right. right. I mean, I'm one of these people with the fair investment in both DC and DCC trains. And I'm never going to be able to convert these to run in a marina. They're in scale. They're very small. They're one-off production. So they're never going to be made again even. And so from a personal point of view, I'm very interested in seeing a system an NMRA net system that would allow me to continue to use these trains well into the future.
0: Well, now let's talk about how NMRA net actually works. You gave me some stuff before this interview that I read through and some videos. We'll have some links to those on our website. I'm not a computer programming natural, so it took a bit of time for me to read through this stuff. But if I've got the technical explanation correctly, every component on the network is called a producer and it can generate event reports. And these are then read by other Components which are known as consumers and they decide whether to act on them. Is that essentially correct?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Like I said before, one way to think of it is providing a set of virtual wires, and the endpoints of these wires are the producers and the consumers, and the wires themselves are the event reports, the messages that indicate an event has happened on the layout.
0: Can you provide some examples of an event report and an action that might come of that?
2: Anything that changes on a layout and that can be electrically detected can be used as an event. So to give a mundane example, a train enters a detected block. This is an event. The block detector can sense this event through a coil or something like that, and it produces an event report as a result. This event report is consumed then down the line by a signal mass, which triggers the mass to change the aspects to all stop. Now, the signal mass changing aspects, that's a change on the layout, too. So now the signal mass produces yet another event report to indicate that it's changed aspects. And then maybe an indicator on a CTC panel or in a JMRI panel or something like that might light up to reflect the fact that the signal is now showing all stop. Other examples of events might be that a turnout has changed position, that the layout fast clock has ticked over a second, so we use event reports to broadcast a fast clock over a network, that a button on a panel has been pressed, that some internal state inside a JMRI logics node has changed, that a new visitor has entered the room, that the lighting has changed. Anything that's of interest to your layout's control, and that can be electrically detected, can go onto the network as an event report.
0: One of the characteristics of NMRA net is that one producer can generate Generate an event report that controls several consumers. Can you provide some examples of where that might be useful?
2: One simple example might be a block occupancy event. The event report the block occupancy detector produces might be consumed by the signal being knocked down. The signal on the block just beyond that, the physical CDC panel in the next room. Alternately, if you'd like to define routes through yards rather than flipping multiple turnouts, you might have a simple version of routing by programming multiple turnouts to consume the same event report that's produced by a button press.
0: And similarly, I guess one consumer can act on event reports generated by several producers. Where might I use that in a layout setting?
2: This one's a little more obscure, but whenever you have multiple points of control over a single element, you'll need this sort of pattern. So, the example I usually give is if you want two identical fascia panels, say one on each side of a scene, so that you can control the turnups in that scene no matter where you happen to be standing relative to it. In this sort of situation, you would be able to control both set of turnouts by programming the buttons on the fascia panels to produce the same event reports in response to button presses on there.
0: You gave a talk about NMRA NET at the NMRA National Convention this summer in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I watched the presentation online and you made some comments about the shortcomings of many accessory control systems that we already use. For example, you mentioned that they can be overkill on a smaller layout and not well suited to modular efforts. What do you mean by that and how will NMR at improve matters
2: for small modular layouts you face a couple of different challenges for one the amount of wiring that can go into setting up even simple turnouts signaling and cab control can be startling the amount of work to set up that one turnout when compared to the overall size of the layout means that it's just generally not worth the effort especially when you can just reach over and flip it yourself or there really isn't any need for signaling because you can see everything already this is my situation by the way this is the way i think about it why i haven't set up these sort of things on my own sort of small layouts that i do but even if you do decide to go ahead and and wire it using DCC accessory coders, the configuration is generally quite a steep learning curve too, as most of these systems are programmed using either CVs or issuing turnout commands while the decoder is in programming mode or some such, and suddenly the barrier to entry using fancy systems like this is quite high for small layouts. With a modular setup, you have to go through all of this configuration and you run into the additional issue of potential address conflicts where you have accessory decoders with the same address. That can be very tricky to run down and debug You know, setting up this sort of control system for modular layout takes a day or more. It's an unnecessary amount of effort, I think. One of the advantages of Enamarena that I hadn't mentioned yet is that every board that you purchase has a permanent, guaranteed unique ID assigned to it at the time of manufacture. So you never worry about address collisions. This is already taken care of for you. But then, as I mentioned before, the way that these boards are configured by uh, associating producers and consumers allows you to take a modular layout and all you have to do is create these connections these virtual wires between them after you've plugged the modules together, and you don't have to worry about very much additional configuration beyond that.
0: We've been talking a lot about switch control and signal control and things like that. Those are obviously the places where people are first going to think about how they can use this, but it's actually designed to do more than just control track signals, and switches. We've mentioned a couple of the other things, but can you give us a few more examples of maybe systems on a layout that a a layout builder might want to control via NMRA net, things that aren't directly related to the Trains themselves.
2: Why don't I tell you about my plan? I'm building a diorama of Akihabara Station in Tokyo. It's a commuter station, it's an elevated station. So, to set the scene, imagine lots of neon lights, lots of sounds. And I was just recently in Tokyo and took the opportunity to make some sound recordings at street level and on the elevated platform. And I made recordings of ambient sound and station announcement of the trains arriving and departing at the platform, which is quite a rush because they enter the platform at about 60 miles an hour, literally inches from your nose. So I wanted to capture all of this in my module. With NMRA modules, and I should stress that the kind of modules I'm talking about right now are on various drawing boards or under development, setting up some sort of automatic triggering of these sound effects and ambient soundscapes becomes quite easy. So I can tell the station announcement module to watch for block occupancy events closer to the platform, play this arrival sound automatically whenever a train comes into the station. And I could do similar sorts of things with the departure sounds and the sounds of the trains actually coming and going. And I'm also working on lighting this diorama with lots of interior lighting and exterior neon lights and video screens and, and all the, that sort of good stuff. And I want the lights and the ambient sounds to follow a day, dusk, night, dawn pattern. With a fast clock on the NMRA net, it's very easy to trigger these sort of changes because they simply respond to the events that correspond to dusk, night, dawn, daybreak, and that sort of thing.
0: The sort of thing that you're talking about there with display panels like electronic billboards, you'd actually be able to display fast clock time on those billboards as well and have it to be constantly updated in real time.
2: Exactly, because it's simply going to watch for these events And every time it sees one, it knows that it needs to update the display.
0: One of the things that you've talked a lot about in our discussion is how compared to other layout control systems, NMRA-NET is designed to be relatively easy for the average layout builder to program the various modules. Obviously, if you're taking a standard module and you're training it to operate a switch machine or to operate a signal, there's going to be different programming that needs to be done for each one of those. How does NMRA-NET solve the problem of taking a very complex system and making it simple for the average layout builder to adapt it to their specific layout requirements.
2: One of the primary goals of Intermarionet is to make it easy for the user to set up and configure. So we've been working hard to make configuration of the producer-consumer relationships as easy as possible. So right now, most boards have a simple onboard interface, which works fine for simple configuration tasks. We call it the the blue-gold interface. It's a couple of LEDs and a couple of buttons. And using these, you can create these connections between boards we also have a basic configuration system built into JMRI 3 that lets you do more sophisticated things using your computer. Bob Jacobson of the JMRI project is also hard at work on an iPad app that uses a kind of drag and drop metaphor to simplify things even more. This kind of interface is made possible, and this is one of my favorite things here, because every NMRA net board carries with it all of the information necessary for a graphical configuration tool to build a human usable interface to the configuration options. So instead of looking up the options, you want a CB29 lookup table, and uh, typing in hex numbers into a keypad, that sort of thing. You'd be presented with a menu of options through JMRI or another configuration tool, and there's descriptions of all of the options, so you don't ever have to look anything up It's self-documenting and graphical.
0: So if I want to program a turnout, for instance, it will give me the option to throw the switch left, throw the switch right, stuff like that.
2: Exactly. And you can even give it names. So you can say, this isn't just a turnout. It's not just turnout 127. This is North Turn. Out on Route 34 in the Eastern Yard. I mean, you can give it as concise a description as you need in order to identify where it is on the layout without having to cross-reference it somewhere else.
0: You're not only part of the group that's developing the protocols for NMRA Net. You're also manufacturing some components that can be used to build control networks that are done to the NMRA Net protocol. What are you offering through your company, Railstars?
2: Well, right now we have two products available for sale: the IO which is a pun. And Io is a moon of Jupiter. It's also a board that provides multiple inputs and outputs. And the IODuino. IO is a very generic, very capable board that comes ready with eight inputs tied to sixteen producers and eight high current outputs tied to sixteen consumers. These inputs and outputs are designed to be connected to various layout control devices people may already have on their layout, switch machines and block occupancy detectors and so forth. And they can also be tied directly to LEDs, bulbs, buttons, and so forth, for example, to create a fascia panel. Basically, IO is meant to be a jack-of-all-trades for getting your existing equipment onto the NMRA net. And as a bonus for those willing to get their hands dirty, it also offers an additional 32 points that can be used as inputs or outputs, but this requires a little additional programming. The iOduino, on the other hand, is a clone of the very popular Arduino prototyping platform. And for those who don't know, Arduino is a very popular little board that was originally designed to make it easy for artists to create electronically controlled art installations is now being used by hundreds of thousands of hobbyists to create electronic projects. It is, in essence, a very sophisticated microcomputer that's easy to connect to objects in the real world. iOduino is an Arduino clone that adds an NMRANet interface to the basic architecture. It's designed to give the DIY crowd a very easy mechanism for building their own custom NMRA net nodes using off-the-shelf hardware designed for the Arduino and the software, also designed for the Arduino, which provides a, a relatively easy programming environment. And right now, believe it or not, Ioduino is is our biggest seller. We have several products in various stages of R&D right now, including a dedicated turnout controller, uh, a signal mask controller, and our our most exciting project, a DCC command station called Northern Star that will act as a bridge between NMRI net throttles and your existing DCC train control system. And of course, we have a blog and a newsletter to keep interested parties up to date on the the developments of our product line.
0: I know that for many of our listeners, this is going to be over their heads, technically speaking, but there are probably a few out there who are listening to you and their heads are nodding and saying, yeah, this is cool. I want to get involved with this. Is there opportunities for people to get involved at this point, helping to develop the protocols or what sort of next steps should people take if they're interested in this and want to explore the potential for their own layout?
2: It's actually really easy to get involved at any level of development here. We've specifically design this to be as open a process as possible. It's very democratic. We need help with everything. So if you're interested in very low-level techie stuff, designing hardware, writing firmware, we could really use your help with the OpenLCB project. You can visit the OpenLCB project's website and their uh, instructions for how to get on our mailing list and how to get involved. If you're not quite so technically inclined, but you have some knowledge of how layouts should be operated in some sense it should. We value that discussion as well, and we invite you to join in the discussion at a higher level to talk about the sort of things that we're likely to encounter, the sort of layout control systems or prototype control systems that people would like to emulate. Finally, if you're interested in just thinking about the standards, editing documents, updating the website, things like that, again, we could always use your help, the OpenLCB project, and the NMRA networking group as well has an open email list that you can join in to provide commentary and input on the standards process itself.
0: Don, listen, thanks for joining me on the Model Railway Show to explain NMRA Net to our listeners. And thanks for your patience with me and my Luddite ways. Also, a shout-out to the NMRA for continuing to create standards that enhance our model railways.
2: It was my pleasure, Trevor.
0: I've been speaking with Don Goodman-Wilson, who is working on the protocols for NMRA Net. Thanks, guys. I must say you seem to have a pretty good handle on this, Trevor. Been doing your homework? Well, it was actually a difficult interview for me because I'm not electronically minded, but Don made a very good job. He's very patient with me answering my questions on it. You know, I think the thing to think about with the NMRA net is that it's going to be like the initial resistance to DCC, but look how that worked out. You know, the NMRA played a very important role in creating a standard so that various decoders would work with any compliance system, and that just made DCC take off. So good on the NMRA for taking on this project as well.
1: Yeah. Now, you might remember Don goodman Wilson. We had him back in episode 33 last March, talking about modeling Japanese trains. That's
0: right. Yes. He's a big fan of the Japanese yeah. trains. I think he lived in Japan for a while. I and think that's so. Yes.
1: Anyway, check that show out on Train Life, and you'll find it there. Exactly. Well, the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can also find us on Facebook.
0: Next up, Jim puts on his hard hat, lights the tunnel lantern, and sinks to... To new Depths with his guest, John Landis. Start naming off some of railroading's fallen flags, and it's not likely
1: the Illinois Tunnel Company will be among them. But for more than 50 years, the narrow-gauge Illinois Tunnel Company railroad toiled mostly unknown 40 feet beneath the streets of Chicago. Its electrified 60-mile web of track linked the sub-basements of downtown businesses in the Windy City. What a brilliant idea that would be today. But it was ahead of its time, and operations ceased 50 years ago were it alive today, it would likely be touted as an innovative and environmentally sound idea for easing commercial congestion at street level. My guest, John Landis, has chosen the Illinois Tunnel Company as his modeling prototype subject, and just to isolate himself a little further from model railroading's mainstream, he's doing it in 7-8 inch scale. But why not? When it comes to scales, John's done a lot of them. S-Gage American Flyer, HO Scale, HON3, 122.5, and 120.3. As for modeling subjects, John has done everything from interurban to western narrow gauge to European meter gauge. John is a former art director of a Wilmington, Delaware design office and is presently the professor emeritus of communications design at Cutstown University, one of the colleges of Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. He's with us now to discuss the rewards and challenges of modeling an obscure railroad in a minority scale. John, welcome to the Model Railway Show.
3: Thanks, Jim. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, you've been published in numerous hobby periodicals, the NMRA Bulletin, Model Railroader, Garden Railways, and most recently, a Narrow Gauge and Short Line Gazette, which is where Trevor and I got the idea for this chat. Publisher Bob Brown's eyes must have lit up when you pitched this one to him.
3: Yes, I think the subject seemed rather unique to him in several ways. It was Narrow Gauge, of course, but it was underground and it was two-foot gauge, unlike most of the articles in the Gazette, which are above ground and often three-foot gauge. So when I mailed a few preliminary photos to Bob, he immediately embraced the idea for an article.
1: Well, exactly what sorts of services did this hidden railroad provide?
3: Well, it was very useful for a lot of years. From 1906 to 1959, it transferred freight and packages between department stores and warehouses and steam railroad stations in Chicago. It delivered heating coal to office buildings and basements and removed the resulting ash and generally kept truck traffic off the streets above. And one of the most unique things, I think, that was a service provided by the railroad was that it sold 55-degree Fahrenheit cool air to movie theaters for summer air conditioning. Of course, that had nothing to do with railroading as such, but just the fact that they were 40 feet beneath the streets permitted the air to stay at consistent cool
1: temperature. That's really interesting. This couldn't happen again today, could it? What happened ultimately to the line? As I've mentioned, what a great idea that would be today.
3: It's really a fabulous idea. The thing that's unique about it, I think today, unlike railroads that have been abandoned more than 50 years ago, is that it still exists beneath the city of Chicago, beneath the streets. The railroad has not been overtaken by nature in the sense that above-ground railroads would have been in that period of time. It's used today by telephone conduits, digital media and so forth. So very high security as you might imagine. Uh, It's not a Available to rail fans I wish it were I'd feel like I'd gone to heaven if I would see it today but it's still there, believe it or not.
1: Toronto has something called open doors. The public is allowed into spots they wouldn't normally be able to get to. Is that something that could happen in Chicago with this?
3: I think it has happened rarely, yes. There is a rail fan organization, Central Electric Railfans Association, that I am not a member of, but I probably should be. It's something that I think on a very rare occasion, a very few people have been let in a certain area, and I have no idea where exactly. Uh, I love the city of Chicago, but I'm not that familiar with specifics of where they might have mm-hmm. entered. And so I, I guess it's uh, possible someday there might be some sort of small museum or something like that created.
1: We're going to get your model in a moment, but first with the prototype or staying with it. The prototype photos have a real scary look to them. The equipment, the subterranean environment are, are most analogous to mining railroads. And that overhead power line wasn't very much overhead. Were employees ever in danger or electrocuted?
3: Well, it was 250-volt DC power, which was pretty hefty, and it was just over the head of the employees, as you observed. Uh, In my research, and I've actually checked this out because I'm curious, as you are, I've not found any accounts of electrocution. However, there's no question, every picture that I've seen, everyone who works in the tunnel seems to have a hat on of one style or another. So for whatever minor protection that might have given the worker. Some of the taller workers I've actually seen in photographs stooping down slightly because they want to avoid contact with the overhead naturally. And legend has it that the company actually favored hiring shorter people. Regarding the somewhat scary look of the prototype, again, you're absolutely right. It was fairly dark and seemed rather cramped a bit crude in its construction, with no concern for how the railroad appeared to the public, because the public just didn't see it. And so I guess being dark and a little bit scary was not a thing to worry about. I've tried to capture this feel in my modeling.
1: How did you find out about this railroad, and what got you interested in modeling it?
3: Well, it was really the research of author Bruce Moffat. He's a Chicagoan, and he's a historian of this railroad, and he has a collection of Photographs, which he's actually published in two excellent books. One's called The Chicago Tunnel Story, and the second one's called 40 Feet Below. And then there's also a video that's called 40 Feet Below as well. And these inspired me to look at these. There were some good websites in addition on the topic, but especially the books. When I saw the photos in the books, read the book from cover to cover and looked at the websites as well, the equipment just seemed so different from anything that I had modeled in the past. And to me, it just begged to be created in miniature.
1: Did you have sort of a head start? Some of this stuff might be available as mining locomotives, might it?
3: Possibly. be honest with you, I didn't pursue that at all. I just knew that from the beginning, I was going to scratch build everything. So you're right. It is mining equipment originally by a number of different manufacturers. Uh, it just seemed to me that it'd be more fun to build it from scratch because, again, I was working in an obscure scale, And so anything I might find would be really nothing more than components for the scratch building like the motor and undergear and so forth.
1: Was it a difficult decision to model this subterranean subject inside of shadow boxes, or was that a decision pretty much made for you?
3: Well, I quickly realized that I needed to create darkness to simulate the underground and create darkness, and then, of course, light it with miniature lights to get the atmosphere and spirit of the underground that I was looking for And I wanted a somewhat claustrophobic feel to the tunnel, so just turning out room lights didn't seem like it was enough. And also, in order to have the overhead wire system attached to the ceiling the way it was in the tunnel, unlike a catenary system suspended by poles on an above-ground electric railway, I had to make the boxed-in and roofed-over environment. And in addition, in the various prototype photos that I saw, There appeared to be all sorts of interesting industrial pipes, vents, ductwork, support beams, all that sort of thing on ceilings and walls. And so I knew to achieve this atmosphere, I really needed to have a roofed-over shadow box kind of construction.
1: So ultimately, is this a layout for human eyes or for camera lenses?
3: (laughs) Well, you're very observant in that comment. There's very little chance to see it in person, in the sense that when you walk into the model railroad room, it doesn't look like there's a model railroad there at all. I don't play to visitors. Upon entering the train room, it just appears to be a number of boxes. An observer has to crouch down and look in various openings, which are more meant for photographing the models than seeing them in person. One great advantage of this is that with very few specific viewing spots, I don't need to model parts that are not visible. And this is very different, of course, from layouts that you can walk around and models that you can see above ground and in- full daylight. And in this case, the modeling in some sense went faster because I only had to model the parts that I knew would be visible from these various openings.
1: Passing thought, you could put a coin collection system on it and call it a peep show. It'd be lined up.
3: <laughs> That's uh, <what> right. <laughs> uh,
1: people who model mining railroads usually do the stuff outside the tunnel portal. Did any of the Illinois Tunnel Company ever see daylight?
3: Yes, but in very few places. The most notable place where the railroad actually was outdoors was a landfill area back in the 20s and 30s. I think about 1930, they stopped doing this, and it created what's today called Burnham Park in Chicago near the Field Museum. The tunnel actually dumped spoil, which is the expression they use for what's taken out of excavations, as well as ash from coal that had been burned by the coal delivered by the railroad to businesses, into Lake Michigan to create parkland. This was intentional, an agreement with the city to create Burnham Park. And loaded cars were actually brought to the surface by elevators, And the equipment was so rarely out in any kind of weather that they never needed any kind of cab or other protection for the motorman. So that was kind of another interesting thing about building this sort of equipment. It was so rarely outdoors that the prototype just didn't have any kind of cabs. And that meant, of course, all kinds of things. You had more chance to see what the motorman looked like and what he was doing and so forth.
1: Which leads to your handcrafted figures. To me, I think you've probably seen these posters from the Soviet bloc or old trade union posters your figures to me are reminiscent of those kind of labor union posters because your figures seem to have that distant purposeful look in in their faces is that just me or is that a look you were going for
3: it is a look i was going for and i appreciate the fact that you've noticed that human figures in the poses that i wanted just aren't available in this seven eighths inch scale so i did have to scratch build all of them they're rather slow in coming to life They're made of a structure of roughly shaped styrofoam, which I do with a rasp. And then I cover it with plaster of Paris, smoothed with spackling. And then I make the heads and arms and legs of Fimo. That's that craft craft. Play that bakes in a home oven, mm-hmm. and each figure has a bit of an eccentric personality, which is that sort of faraway look that you're observing. To him or her, That seemed to develop as I made the figure. Some have even asked for a certain look or even to be named. For example, in my uh, Phase two article most recently in the Gazette, there's a woman named Colleen O'Hara. I named her. She has to be named, actually. She's an Irish singing sensation, fictitious who wanted a tour of the tunnel during her time of her Chicago performances. And a lot of entertainment and sports celebrities did ask for tours of the tunnel. It was a popular thing to do in the early part of the last century. One of my warehouse workers, who has no name at this point, but he just looked like an older man, perhaps someone in his mid to late 60s, and he seemed to just ask for white hair and a mustache. So these people did take on a certain personality and do have a purposeful look to them in that they needed to be crafted to be doing the very job they were doing. And I just couldn't find figures that looked that way.
1: I never thought about it till now, but in those large scales, your figures do have to have names. You get these little bitty figures down in HO or... uh, they're too little to notice, right? They're just
3: kind of anonymous, but yeah. <laughs> well, we don't want to put down the smaller. Scale, no, 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 some, no. no. <laughs> some cases uh, that seems that way. When yeah. I create a face on my larger figures, they just take on a real personality, and it's amazing how when you're working in FEMO, just the slightest change in a mouth or a nose or uh, how deep set the eyes are, it gives the figure a whole different personality. And sometimes I can destroy a face in a minute and have to start over and roll it in my hands just like you'd roll clay and start from scratch.
1: Sounds fun. Uh, Is there enough left to do to keep you engaged or are you looking at your next layout already?
3: Oh, there is uh, plenty to do to keep me engaged. I've written two articles for the Gazette and they've been subtitled phase one and Phase Two. And I'm working right now on phase three, the idea for which was actually suggested by Bob Brown about a year ago this time at the Gauge Convention. He suggested to me that I model a city block of urban Chicago, and in my case, I chose the year 1946, just after the end of the Second World War then show the interaction of the city block above ground with the tunnel beneath the ground. And this would mean things like freight elevators that are partially seen above ground and then partially below ground. And the block right now includes a fruit and vegetable dealer, a movie theater, a five-story apartment house with a bakery on the ground floor, a six-story book printer, a four-story hotel, and a corner bar and the height of these buildings in this scale literally go up to my ceiling. I think if I had a taller ceiling in my basement, I would actually be able to make even taller buildings but they are considerably above eye level. And I've yet to build a tunnel beneath, so there's plenty to do. And I actually do have a non-operating section of the Chicago Rapid Transit Company, later to become the CTA-L in 1947. Above the street, it's a non-operating piece of the L, but it was to help give the city atmosphere. And so there's actually uh, going to be three levels that will be visible. One will be the L, again, non-operating, and then there's the street, and that's non-operating too. But then underneath is the most important thing of all. And that's the tunnel, and that's yet to come. So phase three is going to take me a while to do.
1: I hope this thing ultimately ends up in a museum. It sounds like that should be its (laughs) ultimate destination and a place where it belongs. Thanks for, well, first of all, good on you for tackling such an unusual subject, and thanks for visiting us here on the Model Railway Show.
3: Well, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for your interest.
0: I've been chatting with John Landis. Thanks, Jim, and thanks, John. That is a really interesting prototype and in an interesting scale. I was really impressed by John's articles in the Narrow Gauge and Shortline Gazette about that.
1: Yeah, and quite a coincidence. Uh, I didn't notice until uh, this time around that it was only in our last show we talked about modeling elevated railways in Chicago. So we've got a twofer going. At at some point, we'll have to get down on the ground and
0: do some Chicago surface railways. Yes, I guess so. If you're modeling a Chicago surface railway, get in touch and we'll talk. And while you're thinking about that, if you want to get in touch, find us on the modelrailwayshow.com. While you're there, you can visit our Flickr gallery. And by the way, don't forget to drop into our swag shop for souvenirs of the show. Next time on the Model Railway Show, we tackle the thorny issue of overseas manufacturing. We've all heard the stories about how Chinese factories have kicked out smaller suppliers in order to focus on the majors in the hobby. We're going to look at what that means for the future of ready-to-run in model railroading. Our guests will be Marty McGurk and Joe Giannavarrio. Marty is a former employee at Intermountain and a former editor at Model Railroader magazine. He's going to bring an interesting historic perspective to the issue. While well, Joe, who is the publisher of O Scale Trains magazine, says the solution is simple. Bring that manufacturing back home. We'll talk to him about why he thinks that's a possibility.
1: In closing, a big salute to our three amigos, Dave Woodhead for the original music, Otto von Drack for our web design, and Chris Abbott who wrangles the electrons for us. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show.
0: I, I guess I'm asking a question, aren't I? Hello?